Hello, friends. Thank you for tuning in to Operation Tango Romeo, the trauma recovery podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. We are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. Please support this mission by subscribing to and rating the show on your favorite podcast channel, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Anchor, or anywhere else. By doing so, you'll help others find the help which just might save their life. Also, please help by sharing a link to the show on all of your social media channels every time a new episode drops. And always remember to recover out loud. And we're live. Rockin' and rollin' on Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. Today on the show, I have a very interesting guest that I'm so glad to bring. We've been uh, trying for a while to get uh, this over the finish line and get you on the show. So Dr. Elizabeth Stevens is a veteran, a board-certified psychiatrist, author and CEO of Eden Psychiatry, and the spouse of a Green Beret. (laughs) Which is pretty cool. And uh, we've had lots of Green Berets and and Special Forces folks on the show. Elizabeth, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. You have an interesting story. And if I could, um, I'd like to start with when you got your traumatic brain injury. Because I didn't get a lot of, in my research before the show, I didn't get any details, just that it happened and at a high elevation. That's about all I could find. Mm. Yeah, so my traumatic brain injury, I I moved to Colorado to do a child and adolescent psychiatry fellowship in 2014. And in 2015, after a year of that fellowship, um, I sustained a traumatic brain injury. And it was um, climbing Long's Peak, so I was trying to climb all the 14,000-foot peaks in Colorado within my first year, I'm very very much goal-oriented, and it was about my 33rd, 34th peak, and climbed, climbed many of them perfectly fine, a lot more um, dangerous or uh, treacherous, and it was this freak accident where I was at the end of a boulder field. I went from one boulder to the one below it. My hiking poles got stuck. I had the snow baskets on the the bottom of them. They got stuck at the same time underneath the boulders, and it catapulted me headfirst in the boulder below. And so it was. Um, I was. I lost consciousness, and when I came to. I thought I was blind and I thought I lost all my teeth because my jaw had clenched so tightly and I had blood all in my eyes. And so when I wiped my eyes, I'm like, oh, I can see. And so it was one of those things where I, I'm a very much minimize things and push things down and didn't think much of it. Um, although I could hardly walk out and the, the rescue, mountain rescue couldn't get to me and I was four miles from the car. So um, there was a ranger there, and he said, you're going to need a skin graft if you don't get to the ER immediately. And so I had to hike out, and it was, uh, it was quite, I don't really, really remember too many details on the hike out, but I do, I do remember people looking at me shock and shock and awe of how horrible I looked. So like the, like the brave, brave heart warriors covered in blood. But, I was thinking um, Carrie. Carrie, <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> or Carrie. <laughs> for so those that, that was um, for those that know oh, that movie. That movie was a while ago. So that was the the traumatic brain injury, and on top of that, I had um, about four months after that, I had a seizure, and um, four months after that, I was in a car wreck. So it was just one on top of another, and I couldn't get the healing that I needed. What were some of the symptoms of a, of the TBI, the traumatic brain injury? So I started developing severe migraines and I never really had a headache unless I had a bad sinus infection, um, maybe once or twice during my life. Uh, And so severe migraines, um, I had vestibular migraines on top of the regular migraines to where every, and I didn't, I didn't realize that's what was going on, but um, I went to multiple specialists and finally I found a specialist who actually specialized in vestibular migraines was able to diagnose it, but it's where you, you get the vertigo or extremely dizzy and nauseous, like you're seasick and you, you just can't be upright. You have to lay down or you're going to throw up. Every time I would try to read, it would trigger one of those migraines. Oh no. So for two and a half years, I couldn't even read without getting triggered. Um, and so there were migraines, um, there was just extreme fatigue um, just looking at computer screens, looking at phones, things like that, technology, um, it would set me off. Even, um, and then I started getting, every time I was in a vehicle, really bad car sickness and um, insomnia. Um, on top of the traumatic brain injury, so it was about within a month of that traumatic brain injury, I was raped. So I had that compounded PTSD on top of the TBI that I couldn't process the, the trauma because of my TBI. And so a lot of the symptoms kind of were co-occurring and were mingled together. So insomnia, um, really bad restlessness. So every, I started getting restless leg syndrome where it feels like you have a shot of adrenaline in your legs every time you lay down and try to go to sleep. So it's just almost impossible to go to sleep. Yeah. Um, and then just really, um, with traumatic brain injuries, just a lot of the stimulation with, when your brain is, is overstimulated and it could even be with just a single conversation. So I would have a conversation with someone after five minutes, I would start to slur my speech and my brain was just, would get really tired quickly or word finding was really difficult for me. Math was like one of the first things to go. Like I couldn't do seven plus three in, in it after having all of this education and not being able to, to really calculate things in my mind. And so it was, it was a very difficult period of time for me where um, it was, I blamed most of my issues on the TBI and didn't acknowledge that I had PTSD until uh, two and a half years later. Well, even with your education, it's tough because uh, one of the, um, side effects or symptoms of PTSD that I found and you know you're you're the actual professional I'm just a lived experience guy but um, what I see in myself and in others is that PTSD really lowers your self-awareness self-awareness mm-hmm. and uh, I mean 
the situational awareness as far as threats and whatnot is great because the hypervigilance, so you always know what's going on around you, nobody else does. But um, the the self-awareness, people are injured without realizing that they're injured sometimes for 20 or 30 years. It was 23 years for me. But Mm -hmm. um, so that, even with your education, that lack of self-awareness, um, as a, as a symptom of the injury itself is sort of a compounding factor. Right. Yeah. I, so I had at least three psychological testings and none of them picked up PTSD because a lot of them are, um, they ask you the questions, do you have all these symptoms? Well, I contributed them to the TBI, not to anything psychological. And so it wasn't until a psychologist sat down with me and actually had a conversation with me to where it came out. So a lot of those screening tools, like people can easily say, oh, no, no, I don't have that. I don't have that. But when someone, you can see someone legitimately cares and wants to know and has that conversation um, of past experiences, that's when it came out for me. It's one of the challenges in the entire profession of psychology and psychiatry is competency. Not everybody is. And um, mm-hmm. another thing that I seem to see in the in the community that with that lack of competency is the understanding that a neurological injury is a neurological injury and the symptoms can be so similar all the way through uh, from ADHD, um, PTSD, TBIs, when you look at at them side by side with, um, like, if you were to chart it, there's so much crossover with, like, 80% of the symptoms. So it's really uh, uh, tough to, and, of course, as a diagnostician, people want to label things as opposed to look at it holistically and say, well, maybe it's, uh, it's complex and it's a combination of all of these. But um, uh, how do you, as a professional, dial that in when there's so many things going on? Um, do you need to pick a lane with the labeling and the diagnosis with the DSM? Or uh, how do you do it? So I like to educate people on the diagnosis. And the point of diagnosing is um, if, there, if there are certain symptoms and um, I can identify what, and that's basically my job, is to identify what area it is. Is it ADHD? Is it trauma? Is it a mood disorder? Is it, do they have all three? And being able to provide the right treatment for that. Um, where it's extremely important is with um, medication. If a medication is necessary, it's really important to find the right diagnosis because if we're treating ADHD with a mood stabilizer, that's that's not going to be helpful at all. And it's actually probably going to be harmful for the person to have these side effects without getting the treatment they need. Um, and the other piece is insurance. So insurance and getting the right medication needs a specific diagnosis. Otherwise, the medications won't be covered and it's thousands and thousands of dollars for the patient. So um, I like to tell the person, hey, like you are not your label. You are not your diagnosis. Uh, you are a complex person, human being, and this is just in order to get the correct treatment to get you on the right path for healing. Are you familiar and, with uh, <clears throat> Dr. Gabor Mate? Uh, no, I'm not. Uh, he's out of Vancouver. Um, he's okay. 
on the famous side of things for sure. Uh, one of the documentaries about him is The Wisdom of Trauma, which is mm. very, very interesting. He was recently on the Joe Rogan show, which was a pleasant surprise to have somebody like that on that show. And uh, he had a different take on ADHD. The way he laid it out is that it's not what is um, diagnosed as, from his perspective, what is diagnosed as ADHD is actually just a trauma response. It's mm-hmm. Everything seems to boil down to trauma, which seems right to me in my own personal experience and from what I've observed um, since I've been in this space. And you look at the the symptoms of well, if they're so similar, you know maybe it, this isn't ADHD. Maybe this is a trauma response because it's um could could be seen as a coping mechanism where there's just too much going on, so I have to tune it out. And mm. it's just, it's just it's just the brain coping with trauma. And mm. looking back at at me at the age of uh, seven or eight, and I think. <laughs> That seems to ring true to me. Um, how does that land with you, though, being a, a psychiatrist? You probably have a very different view of it. So I think that there is an overdiagnosis of ADHD. Um, and people, the, the problem is that professionals have a lack of time, whether it's the corporation, the hospital that they work at, the clinic. Um, I'm... I'm fortunate that I have a private clinic so that I can spend as much time as I need to with patients to kind of to identify what the root cause is. Um, when I was going through psych- psychiatric training, I it was it was very difficult to um, identify the root cause because it's you're shuffling through patients and it's really hard to spend enough time that you need to to or you know, sometimes it's months and years to get people to open up to identify the root causes. And so I've seen cases where there hasn't really been any trauma. Maybe young young kids grow up in a good family um, and have the diagnosis of ADHD. But there are a lot of people who undergo trauma who have a lot of symptoms of ADHD, but it's it's either the hypervigilance or it's the avoidance or it's um, just the the incapacity to be able to process everything at once just because of the overload of constantly looking for threat. And so I can see, yes, there's probably a lot of people who have the diagnosis of ADHD or majority is probably trauma, um, but there are cases where it's, not trauma-related or trauma-induced ADHD. What about diet? Diet. I think diet is extremely important, especially um, the processed foods, dyes, things in in the diet. Right now, a lot of the sugar um, that will definitely affect the brain and how they're functioning. And and in my experience, that's probably one of the hardest things to try to get patients to change. Um, unless they're really wanting to, to change, um, is the diet. And part of it is cost. I've heard of, red, of red eating di- healthy food. Red dye number okay. five is one of the many culprits with the mm-hmm. ultra with the yeah. ultra processed food. Mm-hmm. And so it's really important to factor in everything: um, lifestyle, even relationships, past traumas, and not just say, "Oh, here's a bunch of symptoms. Oh, you have ADHD." And so, yeah, I think, I think 
sometimes the lack of time, people just kind of go to a quick, easy fix diagnosis instead of taking the time to say, okay, what's really going on? What's really contributing to these symptoms? Uh, one thing I wanted to uh, ask you today, because I'm really curious about the answer, is what sort of, um, if any, have you had a clash or a confrontation of your faith versus your education? Do those clash up against each other? Depending on the avenue. So um, in usually it's more... Um, like in undergrad, if I was taking classes, um, a, a lot of the people, their personal, their personal faith or beliefs uh, in my undergrad um, did not align with mine. Um, but professionally, it hasn't really ever been an issue. Um, I haven't had any major conflicts. Within the field of psychiatry and psychology, it is important to take a spiritual assessment for patients because I have found that regardless of if they share my faith or not, they have um, issues. Either faith can be supportive for them or faith can be destructive. So on every evaluation that I have for new patients, there is a spiritual question of, do you belong to a spiritual community? Is it destructive or is it supportive? And that's really important because <clears throat> I found through, especially with people who've undergone trauma, even, even myself, we start, we start believing certain things about the world, about ourselves, about our identity, or about God, if, if they believe in God or not, that are destructive to our own lives. And so if someone said, believes that God is punitive, like I believe in God, but I believe that He's punitive, and everything that I do, he's trying to punish me. And everything bad that happens to me is because I'm a bad person. If someone believes that and lives that out, they're probably going to have severe depression. They're probably going to take every trauma personal, personally. And that's something that, unless they verbalize it, then it's just kind of it's stuck in them, and they can't, they're just living it out. And so it's important to be able to, for people to have an avenue to have a conversation or be able to open up and talk freely about those kind of things. Those conversations of, well, God's out to get me, or I'm not enough, or I'm never going to be good enough for God, therefore I'm alone. And so those kind of conversations have been extremely healing for, for people um, to be able to verbalize, acknowledge that, okay, that's actually what I do believe. Is that right? That is that in line with who God is and depending on what their faith is. So I come from a Christian background where I actually, when I, when I began my faith journey, it was like four years old. So I grew up in a house that was extremely supportive for me. So I grew up in, in that environment where they really encouraged your love no matter what you do. You have that un un unconditional love. No matter what you do, there's forgiveness for you. And so I, um, and then the whole, the whole piece, which kind of goes back to the hypocrisy of Christians, which I feel like I lived kind of a life of hypocrisy and I didn't realize it, was that my belief was that I couldn't earn my way to heaven 
but Jesus died for my sins and gave me that eternal life as a free gift. And I accepted that. However, the way I lived was I have to prove my worth to God. Mm. I have to perform. I'm never going to be good enough. And so my faith didn't align with how I lived. And so I think that's where um, with me until I identified like, oh, there's a disconnect here. And I'm actually like pushing myself, striving for what reason. It's, it's, it's all this, this thought that I have in my head or how I'm living it out instead of my, what I actually believe. So with the trauma, that kind of helped really shake up my worldview of how I was living to help me understand, okay, am I truly living out my faith? No, I'm not. How do I do that? And so that was a, a huge uh, issue for me with healing from trauma was trying to live out that performance-based living when I couldn't read, I couldn't work, I couldn't perform, I couldn't do anything. That's one of the major things that prevented me from overcoming the, the PTSD and the TBI because I couldn't, I couldn't understand or I couldn't rectify those two things until I acknowledged them. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, I'm just nodding along with you because all the parallels and the dots that I'm connecting from listening to, to, to what you're saying. And I think I'll start with peer support. So mm. what, I'm, what I'm hearing a lot of, another way of looking at it, the uh, connection that people find through faith, that unconditional love, that's what a good peer support group provides. And that's why it is so incredibly powerful and healing. In a properly run peer support group, there is no judgment. Somebody could say something horrible like, um, yeah, I kicked my dog last week or I backhanded my wife, something really, truly disturbing and uh, where mm-hmm. you, <laughs> like you want to throttle the guy. But you keep your own ego in check and you just listen without judgment. And that is not easy to do. It is not easy to have um, a group like that where you can just listen, absorb, and then try to support somebody to be a better version of themselves. But there's so many different mechanisms to to find that connection, because that's what that is. That's a sense of connection to yourself, to source, to faith, to God, however you want to frame it. It seems to me it's the same thing. Finding a place of unconditional acceptance where you are already enough. And that, that's such mm-hmm. a starting point to heal from anything. Otherwise, um, as a, a quote that you wrote down, that, that I wrote down that I thought was great, you love people how they are, not how they should be. Mm-hmm. And that is the key. That's, that's what we're supposed to get out of, that, or one of the many things, not to oversimplify, but one of the things we're supposed to get with a relationship with God is somebody that loves you for being you. And that's that. That's why we love it. When our dog runs to the door, wagging their tail, uh, when, when you come home, it's like, Oh, you just love me for being me. That's why dog people are dog people. It's that unconditional love. And when we don't get that unconditional love from the people that we're supposed to, um, namely our parents, uh, uh, quite often that creates a sanctuary trauma. Okay, this place where I'm supposed to be safe, and safe just means I'm loved without question. That's what safe is. I'm loved and accepted mm-hmm. for who I am. That's what safe is. 
And wherever you can create that environment of safety, where you have at least a chance, because you don't have this downward pressure of externally people telling you that you are not enough, that you are subpar. Instead, you have a supportive environment that says, no, you're just the way you are right now, this you, you're good. Yeah, you made some mistakes, but this is a learning experience. Let's just don't do that anymore. Do this. Let's get on the healing road. Let's get on a better road. Let's walk towards light and away from darkness. Let's let's go the good, healthy path. It doesn't matter where you find that, whether it be uh, in a church or, or a peer support group or wherever. It, it, that's the bottom line. Either way, is coming to that self-realization through support of, of others that I'm enough, I'm good, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and I and I'm worthy, and that's um, and that's the power of faith and and a relationship with God. Because if you can't get it anywhere else, well, you got a supernatural being that uh, you can find it there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I I had so there were a few people in my life that gave me that unconditional love. And a lot of my experience was betrayal, people who said they were my friends, and then if I was struggling in any way, they were gone. <laughs> or they were just there, you know, when, when I could yeah. climb mountains, and then when I couldn't climb mountains, they were gone. And it was, it was just, and the other piece, too, is I was unwilling to truly know myself. And so if you don't know yourself you you can't find acceptance anywhere because you don't you don't really like I was I was in denial of any darkness within me. I wouldn't let anyone see the darkness within me because I wasn't willing to see it myself. And and it was I only found the ability to do that through through God. Um and it's it's really difficult to find an authentic community of people who get you who understand you, who have been through similar darknesses and say, hey, me too, I've been there and I love you regardless of that darkness. And for me to start acknowledging the issues and the failures and the things that I've done, I was actually able to stop judging others and actually be be real with myself and be real with others of like, wow, like I'm actually capable of the same things that you've done. I can't judge you. There's, there's no, I have no grounds to judge you. Therefore, I can, I can love you and accept you as you are. How do you help your clients, your patients, get to a place of self-love and self-acceptance so that they can heal? Because is that not the foundation? Yeah, so... Some, for a lot of people, that is one of the most difficult things because a lot of it is people typically blame themselves for traumas or shame is extremely huge in, in our culture. And so that shame is, well, I feel shame. I feel ashamed because of what I have done. Therefore, I need to hide. I need to avoid. I need to avoid people. People won't love me. People will reject me and they will abandon me once they get to know the real me. And so I, I try to be that person for them to say, hey, you can say whatever. I'm not going to judge you for anything. Everybody's capable of the same things. And 
And so it's really helping them understand that they are, they have a purpose, they have their own unique identity, and they are loved no matter what. There are a lot of my patients that, um, you know, if they, if they don't share my faith, I'm not going to force it on them, obviously. I'm only going to have the conversation coming from their viewpoint because I want to understand where they're coming from. And I think that's, that's the other important piece of understanding someone's faith and spirituality. Maybe you don't share it, but you can at least understand where they're coming from. How do they see the world? How do they see themselves? And if you don't understand that, then it's really hard to connect with them. And so, well, if all you're doing is looking for symptoms, you know, like so, like so many practitioners do, Oh, here's a symptom. Then they play whack-a-mole with drugs. Symptom, whack-a-mole, some of this, you know. And um, are you familiar with the book? I'm just in the middle of it now, um, Lost Connections. I know. Who's the author? Let me grab it. It's right behind me. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sorry, audio audience. Okay. Uh, Johan Hari, Lost Connections, un- de- okay. Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and Unexpected Solutions. Right mm. there for the video oh, nice. okay. for the video audience there. A little screenshot for you. Um, just basically, the bottom line of the first bit of it, I haven't got to uh, uh, the rest of it, to the solutions, so just some of the problems, is that Beyond the placebo effect, there's there's a fair bit of science out there that says um, that there is no science that says uh, a lack of dopamine in the brain is what causes depression. Um, and there's a lot of science towards that, but everybody that puts up their hand and says it is like, you know, that was just a conversation we had in the 80s and that sort of caught fire, but it's not true. There's there's nothing proving this at all that depression is a chemical imbalance of the brain. It just ain't true. It's uh, the chemicals that go on in your brain that is a uh, an effect, but it's not a cause. And we don't don't even know what that would look like if there was a chemical imbalance in the brain. We don't even know what that means. But that's the layman's version of the first bit of the book, and he provides the breadth of science um, saying so. But uh, that's a bit of a slap in the face to 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 all psychiatrists that that very notion, though. Um, I don't know what's your what's your response to 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 that version of, of or my my take on what the book is so far it, it is very difficult so we don't typically have like a test of okay we're going to measure the dope amounts of dopamine in your brain we're going to measure the amount of serotonin in your brain there are tests that you can test of the neurotransmitters but you're not going to be able to test how much is it actually in the brain you have most of the serotonin in your gut Um, and so, or serotonin receptors in your gut. And so, um, a lot of psychiatry, there's, there's no blood test for it. Right. You can do genetic testing to, to, to test, okay, how is your, how's your body metabolize certain medications to see what might be a better fit. Um, but a lot of it is identifying, um, what, what is your family history of depression? What's the source of the depression? I mean, if there's trauma, if there's shame, if there's 
Um, if there's just, you know, you're in combat over and over and over again and you're just completely depleted and you come back and you just don't have any energy, any motivation, like what, what is the cause? And there might be not just one cause, but there might be multiple just piling up. And a lot of times with trauma, with, with PTSD, depression is a part of it. And so um, the medications, and I've, I've seen many patients where they're extremely depressed, put them on a medication like Prozac, they're back to who they were before. Um, another person, most like similar symptoms, put them on Prozac, nothing. And so it it's really is a trial and error. Um, we have a certain amount of medications out there that can help with depression, but the SSRIs, a third is placebo, a third is effective, and a third is ineffective. And so we really need a lot more research. We really need a lot more um, exploration and, uh, and causes, contributing factors, and really, like, it's the relational aspect of, hey, I need, I need to know you at a deeper level to see what's really going on and how many people go to a psychiatrist or go to a therapist and talk about maybe 10% of what's going on and hide the rest. And so it's really like trust is extremely important in that too. And that's where like, I feel like groups, peer support groups, um, support groups are extremely important because Especially, um, so we have a nonprofit called Advancing Warriors for Veterans and First Responders, where we have those groups where we bring veterans, we bring um, law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics into groups where they have that relatability. They're not asked all these questions of what's the most, what's the worst thing you've ever seen in your life (laughs) by civilians who don't really understand. And so they they already have this baseline of being known in cert- a certain way of, okay, this is what I've done. This is where I've been. And so really in that environment, like there's actually more trust there. More things can come out and they can start wrestling with certain beliefs or concepts or things that they haven't been able to discuss or put out in the open. Or someone else is struggling with something, verbalizes it, and they like they say, oh, I have the same thing. I can actually acknowledge it now because that person is empowering me. And so I think there's a role for, you know, is there sometimes you can have hypothyroid, hypothyroidism, which can cause severe depression. You treat the thyroid, goes away. And so there's, there's certain medical problems that can contribute to depression. Um, so there's a role for that. There's a role for, um, and then there's a role for, community piece having a community of like you had said earlier people who accept you for you people who actually know you and you're not trying to hide or trying to be someone you're not or trying to prove your worth to where you can actually trust them enough to show who you really are and to be able to identify any barriers to growth or healing that you haven't been able to identify with just some professional that you don't really know, you don't really trust and is asking you all these intensive questions. I've seen the power of properly done peer support firsthand. And I um, have the good fortune and the blessing of our 
Department of National Defense flew me to Montreal for a course to be a peer support facilitator. And mm-hmm. I did that for a few years. But um, I'm now on a, another stage of healing, and so I don't attend that uh, all that much. But for your peer support group um, that, that you've created, Advancing Warriors, what are some of the do's and don'ts of um, what that looks like when people get together? So we train, um, faci- we train peer facilitators to run the groups. So if we have a veteran group, we have veterans running the groups. The people who run the groups have been through the program, have experienced healing, and want to give back. And we make sure when we train those facilitators, it is a judgment-free zone, that they, um, there's, there's no uh, criticism, that they're, they provide an environment that empowers other people to be themselves, to be able to talk freely. You don't have to be a Christian to join the group. Um, it's open to everyone. And it's, it's really that open space of whatever you are going through or dealing with, you're accepted in that space. And people will love and accept you as you are. Do you ever and have... So the really, I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. I was going to ask, do you ever have any devout atheists in the group? And are you able to make that work? Or is there a bit of a clash? So it, we haven't had any... We, we've had agnostics. Um, we haven't had any devout atheists who are extremely um, uh, set in their beliefs or who are usually it's people who are open to hear what people have to say. Um, but the agnostics in the group have verbalized, you know, even though I don't believe the Bible and Jesus and all of this stuff, I was really able to take a lot out of this. And I was really able, I was able to enjoy the community and felt accepted. And so um, it depends, like if someone joins a group and is antagonistic or something, I mean, they wouldn't work for anybody. Um, But if they're open or they're, they're, they verbalize, Hey, like, I don't believe this stuff, but I'm here to take what I want to out of it. That's perfectly like accepted and welcomed. I think it's so fascinating when I hear people that do that. A friend of mine uh, is an atheist, and yet she attends a, a community church here in our town on a regular basis because atheist or not, the lessons are good. And she's able to see that. Mm. And I think, well, isn't that fascinating? Like how open-minded and uh, wise is that? Yeah. That you can mm-hmm. be an atheist and, and yet still see the value of church without um, labels, you know, instead of just, just rejecting something because of one aspect of it, to be able to see the whole picture and pick and choose what works for you and what doesn't. You know, I think that is so mature and so wise of her to, to, to be able to do that. I, I was so enthralled when she told me that when I met her there. Yeah, that's a, definitely a special person for sure. Yeah, I think so. So you've dedicated um, a, a great deal of your time because you're a veteran yourself, an Air Force veteran, and mm-hmm. um, that is your focus, veterans and first responders, which is how I first right. uh, got you on my radar. Um, how is that a different crowd from other crowds? 
So I, um, background on first responders for me, my, my grandpa was a police officer for 42 years. My uncle just retired and my cousin was a police officer. And so, um, my, my mom grew up under having a a police officer as a dad for her whole life. And just really that mentality of you have to have it all together. You have to, that external aspect needs to be polished. You have to have that great reputation. If there's anything going on, don't let anybody know. And so I, I developed this stoicism from an early age. No one really knew what was going on in my mind unless I told them. And it was just this mentality of just suck it up, push it down, move on. You have a mission to do. (laughs) Right. And so it was just, that's kind of been my personality up until the trauma where I just, I started to um, allow myself to acknowledge the darkness within me, get to know who I truly am and let others know who I truly am. And so it wasn't until probably after the traumas that I started to become more empathetic to be able to actually have more compassion for others. And it's just knowing that that mentality that, whether it's military, law enforcement, firefighters, um, it's just you, you grow up in that culture, not being able to let any of your dirty laundry out. No one can see any of that because you have a job to do. And if you see that or anyone else sees that, that's going to jeopardize your career, or your mission. And so really, um, really focusing on that, those populations. I mean, I'm extremely passionate and compassionate with about veterans and first responders. I mean, they sacrifice so much. They give, they give so much for our communities and a lot of them are persecuted Looking back to Vietnam, how much they were persecuted for for being in in war, how much police officers are persecuted now. And it's just really, um, my heart goes out to them, and I understand that personality and where they're coming from. And I'm going to take a 60-second break. Yeah, because I have to. <laughs> and uh, so there's going to be a timer. And then we're going to, when we come back, I want to talk about uh, your perspective on the sacrifice of working, the true sacrifice, the impact of uh, those that work in trauma-rich environments for the betterment of everyone else. Um, so I'll be right back. Looks like that took longer than 60 seconds. <laughs> well, fast as I could. Thank you for your patience. All right. So what I wanted to pick up with is the impact, because I I don't think most people, including those that are doing it, um, Mm. most people don't understand the sacrifice. On Remembrance Day or Veterans Day in the States, we understand the sacrifice of those that gave up their lives, those that died, those that died in battle, but the sacrifice of those that lived, I think, is something that is not understood with any depth um, by the living, <laughs> by, by, you know, and whether it's the people themselves that have survived, um, even those that are suffering themselves have difficulty really articulating the impact of, on their lives of having been in a trauma-rich environment and 
how that has impacted themselves and their families. Because it's not just us that uh, that has the sacrifice. It's everybody that's close to us has sacrificed as well. And mm-hmm. how would you explain the impact of living in a trauma-rich environment and working in that from, from day to day and how that manifests different things in our life? Like, what does that look like? And I think it depends. I mean, trauma is trauma, but there are various traumas. And so, you know, depending on someone who's constantly deployed in combat environments where they're away from their family, they're really attached to those group of people that they're going through combat with. And then they come home and no one understands them. Their kids have grown up and their family's been without them. And so one aspect is, the traumas that they face, the life and death situations, the the friends and close close friends that they've lost, having to deal with all of that, going back, not being able to process it, maybe being deployed again, and so it's that um, that isolation of my family doesn't understand, my community doesn't understand, only my buddies can understand, but everybody experiences trauma in their own way, and so. One person who goes through the same situation as another may experience it differently. And so, you know, there's a combat piece, law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, they, they go to work, experience intense trauma, come back, and they're supposed to be these happy spouses, fathers, mothers, and then go back to work into that tra- traumatic environment again. And so humans weren't meant to shift that quickly you, you, you know, we need time to process, we need time to grieve, we need time to be able to understand what's happened. And there's things that combat um, veterans, first responders see that they no human should ever have to see. Um, or picking up, you know, they're the pieces of their, their loved ones after a wreck or after a combat mission and not being able to appropriately grieve or process through that kind of trauma. And, and most people don't have to deal with that kind of thing. And then when they go to talk to someone about it, those people don't understand. Or they don't want to burden, which is what I've heard, they don't want to burden someone with what they've seen or what they've experienced. Therefore, they keep it to themselves. And so it's just this intense darkness, whether it's in war abroad or war within their own community it's 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 this intense darkness that they see on a regular basis or see extremely frequently and it's it's difficult enough for a civilian to go through flooding or tornado or a fire or things like that one time in their life where they can be traumatized and and have ptsd their whole lives because of that one event let alone all these other events and on top of that, they're expected to deal with it and to be fine with it and to continue to perform. And so I think that expectation compounds everything else. Listening to you, it's, uh, it occurs to me that evolutionarily speaking, like how our brain has evolved over the however long we've been on the planet, um, tip, like until only a couple thousand years ago, uh, we were in tribes of one to 200 people. And that was about it. And that's about as big as a community would be. 
an entire town would be a couple hundred people. And so our whole time in, in tribes roughly that size for the, the majority of the evolution of our, of our brain, um, we would only see super traumatic things occasionally. No, here and here and there, you know, you weren't getting chased by a saber toothed tiger every day. That was an occasional thing, you know, um, or or unexpected death was an occasional thing. But we were just not built for constant trauma or constant war. Maybe one tribe has a skirmish with with the other tribe, so you see some carnage. But that's not daily that's um you know uh, once every few years there would be something like that um so then all of a sudden our population exploded boom we've got uh, one billion two billion eight billion people uh, all in the blink of an eye from a uh, evolutionary standpoint like it's just the blink of an eye there was no time whatsoever for our brain to catch up or adjust or make any kind of provision for how our society has changed uh, i think that's one of the reasons that people are so indifferent to each other in the big cities the bigger the city the more indifferent they are to each other whereas you go to a small community and it feels like tribe again and everybody's talking to each other and cares about each other and looks out for each other just instinctively because it's like oh we're a small tribe we have to but um anyway i was just thinking out loud <laughs> with no, all that that's, that's with really, all that yeah it's really important and and a lot of people are in the military when if you're in the national guard um when you're deployed you're deployed you can be deployed with different units or different people and then you come back and you have to live your civil or your your lives with your other careers and and so it's very much um isolating and and having that tribe that small community of people who you know if you have to go to battle to fight a neighboring group of people you come back everybody knows what you did where you've been what's been going on and you have that group of warriors who fought beside you who you can share share those experiences with and a lot of times we we don't have that yeah it is important and the the bonds that you make because of trauma are incredible uh just the other day i had a friend spend the night here that i haven't seen in 27 years um, but we were in a war together and we slept in a cave on the top of a mountain together for a couple of months, you know, with bombs going off all around us. And, uh, when we saw each other, it's like 10 minutes had passed, even though it was 27 years, there's a bond that, that you get in those environments that you just simply don't get anywhere else. It just, it can't be explained. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. that sense of tribe is so healing. So let's talk about your book a little bit. Uh, you've got an oncoming upcoming book unshackled when is it going to hit the shelves october 4th so it will be on um amazon online and the bookstores um so yeah it's it's exciting and it's about my story of trauma everything that kind of unfolded from the the hike and everything after um and then the first half of the book is barriers to healing so what prevented my healing, and then other people, other first responders, veterans who've been through traumas, um, who, who've been through the nonprofit, and I had that, that, account, that firsthand experience of seeing them change and transform and heal. 
and um, and then some patients of mine who have found healing. And so the first part of the book are what barriers did I face? What barriers did they face? And then the second half is our pathways to healing. So Wonderful. what paths did, did we take? Did I take? Did other people take? Or they were able to find healing, practical practical ways, steps that you can take, and um, really helping people understand what, what the trauma has done to them or their loved ones, uh, what trauma does in general, the effects of it, and how you can find freedom. What would you say is the number one barrier to healing? I would say denial mm. is the number one. Um, because if you don't acknowledge something's going on, you're never going to deal with it. And I've seen, we had a, a, a veteran in one of my first groups, and he's in the book. Um, it was um, 40 plus years of severe PTSD. The only people that knew about it were his family members, those close to him of like, hey, you've got all of these issues going on, you need help. He was in complete and utter denial, like, this is normal. I don't need help. He's still looking for his, his gun when he's going to work, and it's been over 40 years that he's used it. And so it's this, um, it's this mentality of, I don't have a problem. Um, I don't need help. I'm not, my trauma wasn't that bad. And it's just really minimizing things. Um, and then once you start re- receiving healing, I mean, one of the things he told me is, he's like, I didn't know what peace was. And I'm feeling it for the first time. And it's that like really helping people who are suffering and struggling and don't even realize like that's the norm for them. That's the baseline. We can get them to a place of, of thriving instead of just trying to get through and survive every day. And so that, you know, countless times it's, it's denial is that huge barrier of like, I'll need help. I can deal with it on my own. I would say the second, which is kind of, which is very similar to denial is avoidance because mm-hmm. avoidance, like you're denying things, right? Or you use substances or um, other things to cover up or to avoid or to numb, never dealing with the real issue. And so I, I would say those were, are the, the two ones. Uh, the reason I asked and uh, as I once did a episode, and I've said it more than once on the show, that uh, the greatest barrier to healing is the victim mentality, which is totally on the other side of the spectrum of, mm. uh, of this. Uh, do you believe that the victim mentality is a barrier to, to healing? If so, how so? I would, I would say it is. Um, in the first responder veteran communities that I've been a part of, I haven't seen as much of the victim. I have seen it. I haven't seen as much of the victim as I have the denial. Um, And and that's one of the biggest um, hurdles in getting people into a group or getting people um, help in any way is the mentality of I'm strong, I'm courageous, I can deal deal with it all myself whereas like actually the strength comes with being able to be vulnerable and honest with yourself and it's really helping people shift that perspective but I do agree I think the victim mentality is increasing more and more and more 
of that kind of the um there's a couple different aspects of the victim mentality it could be um i want to i i'm going to get hurt i'm going to be traumatized there's going to be something else that's going to happen so i'm not going to do anything um or it could be um you know being identifying yourself with your trauma yes that's that's the one yourself as the victim that's the one that sticks out for me because if i'm an injured veteran i'm special and I have a special status. And, oh, now I have special services. Now I have special attention. Now there's all these foundations that, that are out there mm-hmm. to support me. Aren't I special? I'm pretty important. Mm-hmm. And those with really low self-esteem and a, that are missing a strong sense of self and agency, um, mm-hmm. they'll grasp to anything they can get that makes them feel important. And if that's, mm-hmm. if that's the one thing you got that makes you feel like you're uh, special, I've seen people cling to it and guard it with ferocity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and I, I, I have seen that too. And I think um, with our nonprofit, we don't draw those people to us because when they get into a group where they're like, okay, these guys have been there, done that, and they're not playing the victim role. Maybe I need to either rethink what's going on, or I still want to do the victim role, so I don't want to be a part of the group. Yeah. So I think I think that exposes people if they have the wrong motives, or if they just want to be stuck in that. Um, organizations that have like they keep giving, giving, giving like trips and stuff like that. I could definitely see it. You know it draw more people or people who um, want those freebies and um, they don't have to, they're not giving any of themselves. They're not sharing who they are. They're just taking, I could see that would draw more of that kind of person. Although I agree with you, uh, although that is something that happens, it is something we've both seen. Uh, I believe that it's a much bigger pile of people that are in denial. It's a, and I've said this many times because people will complain about those that are milking the system with Veterans Affairs. It's like, well, yeah, that does happen. For sure it does. And it's gross, um, but it, it does happen. But that is a minority compared to those that have never asked uh, for help, that won't ask for help, and they desperately, desperately need the help. Um, mm-hmm. Would you agree with that assessment? For sure. Mm-hmm. And I... I hear it over and over um, with people who they've been in severe combat situations and they say, I don't want to hand out. I don't want to deal with that. I don't want. And so it's just that. And to hear what they've been through, it's like, Oh, (laughs) you know, it would be great if you could receive some help or just even like process through that. But it's that, well, once I open that can of worms, it's never going to be closed again. And so there's that fear there that I don't want to bring any of this out because then I'm just going to completely unravel. And what I've said to, to those folks, and I've said it on the show many, many times, is that if you don't want to poke that bear, if you want to leave sleeping dogs lie, well, here's a little um, surprise for you. You think it's a sleeping dog. It ain't. 
you know, um, it, it, sure. it, ignoring it will not help because that dog, it just gets bigger and nastier and meaner. And the more you mm-hmm. ignore that sleep, that so-called sleeping dog, the worse it gets. Uh, it, the sooner you poke the bear, the sooner you disturb the sleeping dog, the sooner you face it, the easier it is to deal with it. And it's a tough road any way you, you, you slice it. But if you wait... 20 or 30 years before you mm. before you address it it's going to be so much worse because it's like a bad cancer it mastocizes uh, mm-hmm. so get, the sooner you get on it the better and and people don't understand i mean because they haven't experienced what's on the other side they don't understand the freedom and the peace and the joy and just having a greater capacity to love and be compassionate and have healthier relationships it you know a lot of times like it's well i don't really believe that will happen to me or that's for me but you know you're not going to know until you try that's it any closing words anything that uh, the audience needs to know i would say in our um we we joke about with with the nonprofit of saying like these groups are for people who don't need help um the, the book is for people who don't think they have any trauma, right? It's, it's, um, it's really, you know, just exploring, being open-minded of saying, okay, well, it, it, it'd be intriguing to understand how other people have found healing. Is there something I can take away from it? Can, is there a, a support group around me where I can just dip my toe in? It's not something that you are committed to for life. It's just something to check out. And I think that really being honest with yourself and really having that empowerment of community and like you're a part of the peer support, that's extremely important. And, um, and so we, for our nonprofit, um, we're, we're hoping to expand um, internationally um, and people who um, first responders, veterans, who want to dip their toe in or want to check it out. Um, advancingwarriors.org is, is the website. Um, but it really, you know, if there's a peer support group around you in your area, I know that um, this, this podcast is an amazing resource um, that can educate people and help give, give people that hope and empowerment. And so I'm really, really thankful to be on this podcast and um, really thankful to hear more about what you do and, um, just be a part of this experience. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, so glad to help to share your voice. And for those listening, if you want to help and support this community, share, share like the sugar bear because sharing is caring. Yeah. I haven't said that in a while. I used to say it all the time. Um, yeah. Ellie, thank you for being here. Please stay on the line. Okay. Thank you. You're listening to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. Hello, friends. Thank you for tuning in to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. We are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. Please support this mission by subscribing to and rating the show on your favorite podcast channel, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Anchor, or anywhere else. By doing so, you'll help others find the help which just might save their life. 
Also, please help by sharing a link to the show on all of your social media channels every time a new episode drops. And always remember to recover out loud.